We're continuing to make our way through the Psalms, and this morning we find ourselves in Psalm 33. And this psalm, in a lot of ways, is about what we're doing right now. It's a, it's a hymn of praise that was written for God's people. And so this morning might feel a little bit like uh, preaching to the choir, uh, it, you know, talking to a bunch of people gathered, already gathered for corporate worship about the importance of corporate worship. Um, but it's really a sweet thing to sit and consider what in the world is God up to when we gather together, when we worship together? What's he doing in and through us? What are we doing for each other as we gather together? And, uh, and, and uh, why in the world does God call us to worship him? Those are the things that we'll be talking together about this morning as we look. Let's look together at Psalm 33. I'm going to read the entire psalm, all 22 verses. Hear the word of the Lord. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. And the plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man from where he sits enthroned. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. And the war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death. And keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us. Even as we hope in you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You are our hope, our shield, our rescue, our father, our older brother our helper. I pray you'd be among us this morning. You would help us as we hear from your word, speak to our hearts. Tell us the truth of Jesus that we long to hear. Tell us the story again of our identity in you. And would you help me? Help me to uh, think well, to speak well, to love these friends well, and to honor you with every word I say. As he sings in Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin by just telling you about an old friend of mine. Uh, His name is Jonathan. 
Uh, Jonathan does not go to Red Mountain Church. Uh, he was somebody I worked with many years ago at a, several, at a, at a, a few churches before this one. And uh, he's a great guy. We, we worked together for a while, but we really became close because we went on a series of camping trips together. And that's kind of where our friendship, our deeper friendship was uh, was formed, and uh, it was while on while camping with Jonathan that I learned that he had a very uh, particular gift. Uh, he could build a fire in just about any circumstance. Um, <clears throat> now I know it's a little hard to imagine the glories of a good campfire when it's like a hundred degrees outside, but just just imagine uh, on a cool night in the mountains. There's just something magical about a good fire. And if you needed a good fire, Jonathan was your man. Uh, Even if it was pouring rain, uh, he might find a way to get it done. Uh, With wet wood, it didn't matter. I once saw him um, build a roaring campfire in the middle of the night when it was 19 degrees outside and it was snowing. Unbelievable. But that wasn't the most impressive thing. The most impressive thing I saw him do with a fire was one morning. It was early one morning, like the remains of the, uh, the, the fire from the night before had died down. It was kind of early. I think dawn had just set in. It was still a little bit cool. And I was sleeping in a hammock when I heard somebody stirring in the camp. And I looked and I saw it was Jonathan. And Jonathan was kneeling over the fire from the night before. And he was just raking his hands through the ash. And he just kept going until he found something warm. And he found a few small coals left over from the night before. And he put them together and he blew on them. And then he found some, and it was like so patient. He found a few leaves and blew on it some more. He found a few twigs and blew on it. And what he did was he brought the fire from the night before back to life again. And I tell you that story... Because God is up to something very similar in this passage. So often our hearts kind of look like that fire from the night before. Like there's evidence it burned hot at one time. But sometimes we come into this place just just feeling like there are a few warm coals left. And when we look at this psalm, God is at work through our worship. Breathing life back into us again. Reviving the soul. And he does it in a few different ways. And all of it has to do with what we're doing here together in our corporate worship gathering. The first thing he does is he calls us to worship. And then he shows us uh, the reason for our worship. And then finally he concludes by showing us some of the results of our worship. Okay, so call to worship. Reason for our worship the results of our worship. So first, first he calls us to worship. Um, it begins with a call to worship. Those few first three verses is a, uh, it might be a verse, it might be something you would recognize because you, you've probably seen it in our bulletin before. These are verses we've used uh, to, to, uh, to call each other to worship. God's word comes to us and calls his people to worship. So I want to talk about who receives the call, what this worship looks like, and what we do as a worshiping people. Uh, who it's for. Well, God's, God calls his people to worship him. This is a very common theme 
uh, throughout the entire Bible. God is very concerned about the worship of his own people. In fact, the first four of the Ten Commandments are really, really surround uh, our worship of him and, uh, and not worshiping anything else. Well, why? It tells us that in verse, verse 1 that it's only fitting. Praise befits the upright. It's fitting that God's people worship him. Uh, it's interesting to consider and think about this, where the psalm is placed. Some of you were here last week. We were looking at Psalm 32. And uh, Psalm 32, it, it, Psalm 33 almost feels like an extension of Psalm 32. If you remember, Psalm 32 is David proclaiming the great blessing we enjoy as God's forgiven people. It ends, he says this, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. That's the, that's the natural cry of one who has been forgiven by God. And then in verse 1, uh, of Psalm 33, it repeats this almost word for word. And so the point is clear. Worship is not just for God's people, it's for God's forgiven people. That our worship of the Lord should flow naturally from an understanding of who God is and all that he has done for us. We worship because we belong to him through his forgiveness. It befits us. And then you look at the passage, you also see what this looks like. It begins by showing us that our worship should be exuberant. Uh, shout for joy, it says. Uh, in verse 3, play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. Uh, a better translation or more literal translation of that word would be yelling. Like the passage is actually telling us that God's people would yell for joy. It's like we're being carried away by joy. The closest, I could probably think of a better example of this, but, um, but this is the one I thought of. It's like when you're at an airport. And, uh, and because somebody's arriving and you're really excited to see them. Uh, this is somebody you're, you have, you, you really love them. You, uh, you're close with them. You're very excited to see them. So much so that you're not going to do the thing where you park in the garage and you like circle around, you, like you, you circle around and wait for them to call you and you pick them up, you know. You, uh, you're actually going to park and pay for parking and you're going to go in because you can't wait to see them, uh, come off that ramp. And what happens when you see them? What do you walk up to them and, uh, and you like, you just kind of stand there and, you know, you speak in low, low tones and you say, it's very nice to see you again after all this time. No. In fact, what happens is you get kind of carried away by joy. You're, you're the volume of your voice goes up. You worry a little less about what the people around you think and you get carried away with joy. There's also a, 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 a prominent mention of, uh, of music in this passage. We, we, you know, that shouldn't come as a surprise. We have music in each one of our, in our, of our services. Uh, it mentions a few stringed instruments, the harp of the ten strings and the lyre. Uh, I don't know. I'm not a musician. That, I mean, our modern day version might be the guitar or something like that. Uh, this is actually the first time in the Psalms that, uh, that the use of musical instruments in worship are mentioned. 
But you see it in in several different places. Psalm 150, some of you will be happy to know that Psalm 150 mentions percussion and wind instruments being used in worship. But the point that, that, that it's making is clear is that you should use all your creativity and use all your skill in an effort to honor the Lord with our worship. That's really important. But there's something that, that music accomplishes in us uh, that, that's important to note. There, there is something about singing together as God's people, singing the promises of God, singing the hope of God, singing the honesty about ourselves that does to us in worship that's really important we recognize. And, and it's, a, it's a big answer, but I'm just going to give you part of it. I'm just going to say that, that singing and music helps us better kind of feel what we think. It helps connect the cognitive with the emotion. When we gather in worship, we're saying things we believe, but we're also straining to believe them. Uh, so there's somebody who says that he who prays, he who sings prays twice. It's this earnest embrace of the truths of the Lord. And all this is meant to capture what we see in verse 3 where it says, Sing to him a new song. That's a, that's a good question. Is God doing something new? Is he writing a new Is, is there a place for new songs in our worship? It's actually not all about, about that. Really what that's about is a, a renewed, fresh experience of God's grace. That's what that verse is about. It's, 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 it's a, a re-strengthening of our conviction of faith is what it's about. It's meant to renew our vigor. To breathe us back to life in God. And when you look at this call to worship, the thing that I'm most thankful for is what this assumes about us. Because it almost assumes that we would come into worship needing to have new life breathed back into us. It, 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 it like assumes that if the fires of our heart aren't tended to over time, that they will dwindle. And so we come back as those who are struggling with our life in a, in a world that we struggle in, needing to be reminded what's true, gathering with God's people, and to be strengthened in worship again. See, worship is a place for real people. It's, it's not a place where we come and we kind of act like everything's okay. Worship is a place where the truth of what we believe is applied to struggle. And if you don't believe me, some of the, the most prominent hymn writers of our history were writing beautiful hymns from a place of real struggle. In fact, many of the hymns that we sing are really honest about our lives and proclaim with real beauty what we believe, applying truth to struggle. Over this past week, I got a chance to uh, uh, read some of, the, some of our more famous hymn writers' stories. And the one that I kept coming back to was the story of a guy named William Cooper. Now, um, <clears throat> it's pronounced Cooper, but you've actually seen his name in our bulletin before. It, phonetically, it it's, looks like Cowper, C-O-W-P-E-R, but it's pronounced 
uh, William Cooper. He has just this amazing story. He was, he was a man who really struggled uh, significantly with depression. He was treated uh, in a mental hospital, and, and, and that mental hospital was where he actually met Jesus uh, for the first time. He, he left, when that treatment ended, he left as a new believer. And uh, he was a British uh, poet, hymn writer, and he, uh, he, he left and came to reside in the small town of Olney. I actually don't know if that's a small town. I just imagined it as a small, it might be, I don't know. Maybe you can correct me if you know. But Olney, the, Olney was uh, the place where none other than John Newton was pastoring. John Newton, the one who wrote Amazing Grace, was pastoring there and he became William Cooper's pastor. And, uh, and he saw this gift in William Cooper, and he encouraged it. He later became what William Wilberforce called my favorite poet. And he wrote just volumes of beautiful hymns from places of real struggle. And the one that I want to point out to you, it's not one that we sing here, although maybe we should. It's an easy thing for me to say when Jeff's not in town. Um, <clears throat> Maybe we should. Uh, it's called Sometimes a Light Surprises. Uh, if you're familiar with the Trinity hymnal, it's in there. And there's this last verse I want to read to you. It, 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 he is writing about how the world can feel so bare and difficult, really honestly about that. And then he wrote this. He said, yet God the same abiding, his praise shall tune my voice. For while in him confiding... I cannot but rejoice. Can you hear that? Can you hear the voice of a man searching for joy and finding it in one place? Listen, that's what worship does. We come in as people searching for joy. We come in as people needy for joy. And we're finding it in one place together. Years ago, one woman... Again, somebody that didn't go to this church, different church. Uh, she was in a particularly, really, just a very hard place. And she said this to me. She said, I, I can't sing these songs right now. It's too hard. But I keep coming back so that I can hear the person next to me singing them. It's helping me believe what's true. So there's a responsibility we have for each other. Sometimes we borrow from each other's energy through our mutual fellowship and congregational singing and worship. We give these things to each other. We need to hear each other singing sometimes as much as we hear ourselves singing. And I tell you that because I, I do think there are times where it's hard to worship. It's hard, it can be hard to come in here. There are times when this call to worship we hear can feel very far away from our desire to worship. And that can be for all kinds of reasons. But listen, when you hear a call to worship, what I want you to hear is that worship is a call to remember what's true. It, it, worship is a time where we're trying to apply truth, the truth of who we are, the truth of how, who God is, into places of real struggle. The truth about his persistent and, and ongoing and permanent love for you. The truth that your life is hidden in him. 
the truth about your future being established in him. And, and that's exactly what we see as you move forward into the psalm. Uh, when you examine uh, the body of this psalm is all, are all the reasons that we have to come to God, why God is worthy of our worship. And it's really just a proclamation of the truth of who God is. Uh, It begins with the truth of God's word. It says that all of God's words are true. The word of the Lord is upright. That's a a word that just means it's straight and level. And it's an assessment of God's character. That's why verse 4 and 5 go on to explain God's character. Look at all these character assessments or, or character values that you see. His work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness. And justice, the earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Faithful, hear that? Faithful, righteous, just, loving. God's character, like so many people we know, God's character is reflected in the words that he says. His word is upright. But not only are God's words true, we also see that God's words are really powerful. Uh, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. That's verse 6. Now, that's just hearkening back to what we see in Genesis chapter 1, where God spoke words out into nothing and created the world out of nothing by the word of his power. Um, Most of us have had this experience at some time where we look out at the beauty of God's creation and we see something, we're moved internally by something of the divine when we see it. Our hearts are are moved to praise in some way. Well, one of the things that we're seeing in this passage, see how they note that, uh, that God's words, um, that we know God through, know God's character through, through his words, and we know God also through his work of cre- creation. There's this inextricable connection between the two. That God reveals himself to us in these ways. Psalm 19, you see it all over the place, especially in the Psalms. Psalm 19 does the exact same thing. Notice how it begins. Psalm 19 begins with the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky proclaims his handiwork, right? So we, we, we meet something of God when we look out on creation. It communicates to us. God reveals himself to us. And then it does this. It says the law of the Lord, his words are perfect reviving the soul. That these are two of the primary ways we come to know God are through his creational activity and through his word. This is how he reveals himself to us. Last week I talked to you a little bit about the uh, ministry of Francis Schaeffer. I I forgot about this story, so I'm going to give it to you now. I have a friend um, <clears throat> who actually got a chance to meet him. And uh, he was this friend. Uh, he's a pastor now. Um, but decades ago, he was a church planner in the heart of London. He was a, a Pentecostal charismatic church planner in the heart of London working, uh, I, think, I think he was in his 20s. I don't know. Uh, this guy was brilliant. And Francis Schaeffer came uh, to London to do some lectures. And because my friend was doing some writing for a Christian publication, he actually reached out and got an interview with the guy. And so he sits down, just imagine this. He sits down, this young man with Francis Schaefer, and, uh, and he asks the question that he's concerned about. 
Um, he found he found Francis Schaeffer fascinating, by the way, which seems like everybody who met him did. But he eventually asked him this question. He said, do you think that there will be revival coming soon amongst God's people? And Francis Schaeffer said, boy, I hope not. Now, you got to imagine the way that would land for a, a, a charismatic pastor who prays for revival every day. Francis Schaeffer said, boy, I hope not. And, uh, and my friend asked uh, Francis Schaeffer, what in the world could you mean? And Francis Schaeffer said, well, it would be a tissue paper revival. That's what he said. He said, our theological depth, our knowledge of the Lord is so thin right now that if the fire came, it would go up and go out immediately. And then he said, you need to go stack some firewood. You need to develop some depth of knowledge of who God is. Study. So that when, when the fire comes, it has something to burn for a while. That's what he said. And that changed the trajectory of my friend. He, he actually, believe it or not, he went down the street to the Metropolitan Tabernacles bookstore where Spurgeon used to preach. And he bought Bavinck's systematic theology and began to read it. Like that changed his whole trajectory in life. But what's the point that he was making? He was making this connection between the knowledge of God and passion for God. That when we worship, we learn more about who God is. And we learn more about who we are. And the psalm, and one of the reasons for that is when we study him and his word, we don't just see his character, but we also see his will, his good, pleasing and perfect will. That's exactly where the psalm goes. It tells us in verse 11 that God's will prevails. Many, many other people will have will that, that wills or purposes or counsels that won't prevail, prevail but God's will will. It will. The counsel or purposes of the Lord stand forever. His will always prevails. In the end, he is the one, the only one who actually accomplishes what he sets out to do. So listen. God's word, God's will. And uh, these are majestic claims being made about who God is, okay? So you're getting a sense, this is important, you're getting a sense of his His grand majesty, his power. Uh, you're getting a sense of his transcendence. And I would propose to you that that's enough. Uh, I would propose to you that, that that actually is enough to make God completely worthy of our praise. In fact, uh, we would have to admit that our hearts have been moved to praise far less at times, right? But I would also, and this is a big but, I would also say that that alone isn't enough to give you peace. To find peace in worship. No, for that, you would also have to hear that this grand majesty is also capable of profound love for you. Look at verse 18. Behold the eye of the Lord. His special attention is on those who fear him. On those who hope in his steadfast love. That he may deliver their soul from death. And keep them alive in famine. 
is a profound claim because it is telling us that the God, the same God, the God who rules with power, the God who always, whose purposes always succeed is the same God who has set his affection on his people never to remove it. I like to think of this as a divine intersection. You see it all the time in the Bible. You see it especially in the Psalms. It, 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 you, you are seeing these claims that both God's transcendence and his eminence intersect in the character of God himself. That he is both completely powerful and profoundly loving at the same time. Where else will you find something like that? And yet the Bible points to this truth about who God is all the time. And what the psalm is pointing to, what you see claimed in the psalms, you actually see come to life in the story of Jesus Christ. That Jesus is like the incarnation, the manifestation of this divine intersection of both God's power and God's profound love. Because when you see, when you see Jesus move in these stories, you see him moving with power, right? Like you see him doing things that nobody else can do. In fact, not only does he speak with God's words, but John 1 tells us that he is God's word. And uh, Colossians 1 tells us that it's by Jesus' power all things right now are being held together. And when you see him speak, you see him moving with, uh, with creational authority. Like he calmed the sea. He's, he spoke peace to the sea and then it, there was peace. But you also see him exercising love. Love for hurting people. Love for the marginalized, love for those who struggle, love for the broken. You see him using words to to bring people back to life, using words to feed people, using words to promise a new kingdom has come through him. Every time you see Jesus exercising power, you also see him exercising love. That he is the, the divine intersection of both God's power and his love. And so listen, all along, just like you see in the psalm, the scriptures were pointing to the manifestation of that divine intersection. The psalm is actually pointing to Jesus. Jesus is the reason for our worship. He's the reason. Just like this psalm pointed God's people uh, to to look at who God is, Jesus is the one who, who gives us great reason for worship. I mean, just look at the elements of worship that we've done this morning, okay? And that we will do. Listen, why do we sing? We sing because we're, we were loved by him, and so we love him. Uh, we confess our sins because we're, for, because we're forgiven in him. And there's no point being dishonest about ourselves because Jesus knows who we are. Uh, we pray because in, in our union with Christ, we are heard in him. Uh, and we, in a minute, we're going to take this meal together. And you know who set this table and provided this bread and this wine? Jesus himself. Jesus provides this meal to us. He is like the anchor of our worship. And so we give ourselves to Jesus in worship because Jesus has first given himself to us. 
And when he did, he made us those people that the psalm mentions, those people on whom God set his special affection. God, Jesus makes us those people. And I think this leads us to a question. This is where I'm going to end. Because worship doesn't just orient our hearts in the right direction, remind us what's true. It also changes us. It, it really is the most formative thing you will do with your life. Okay, It's the most formative work that we participate in. But what does it produce? Right? What, what are the results of our worship? And I'm going to name simple, three simple things that we see right at the end of the psalm. The kind of people... Uh, who were formed to be through our worship. It tells us that we grow in hope. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Uh, It also tells us that we grow in happiness. Our hearts are glad in him. And then finally, worship grows our faith. We trust. We grow in our trust in him. And you know what's interesting to me about all this? This psalm begins with a shout, didn't it? exuberant expression and listen i know some of you in here are ready to let it rip okay and that's great like you're welcome in this place okay some of you might want to raise your hands a little higher than your shoulders but it ends with the quiet christian confidence it begins with a shout, but it ends with what looks like quiet Christian faith. These are the expressions of quiet hearts, hearts that have really learned what it means to find rest in God's promises. That's where, that's where worship takes us. And that's what, that's what we want, isn't it? Some of the most profound Christian influences in my life, almost all of them have been older people, who have lived a life of faith or faith for some amount of time. They just had this quiet Christian confidence. They weren't prone to reacting strongly to the latest thing they heard. They're not spending their lives having imaginary arguments with that person that said something to them yesterday. You know, like they, they just have this quiet rest in who Jesus is. It's like they have quiet rest that comes from a burning faith. You know what occurs to me about my friend who could build a fire out of anything, that when he was looking for something to to revive back to life, he wasn't looking for flames. He was just looking for a few resilient coals, still just burning hot, just a little bit. That's all he needed. Listen, God comes to us and he works with us patiently, reviving the soul, bringing us back to life. That's what our hope is for this worship. And that's my prayer for you. And it's my prayer for me. Let me pray. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. And we pray that you would revive our souls, that you would help us. That you would be among us, applying the truth of who you are to the places we need most to hear it. And that you would give us profound grace to embrace the truths that you lay before us. Make us your worshiping people, we pray. In Jesus' name.
Amen.